Well, go ahead, and if you haven't already uh, opened your Bible or marked your place there, go ahead and turn to John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. For those who are visiting for the first time, you have no idea. We had been going through the Gospel of uh, John, through, through a series on the Gospel of John, and then when we got to the farewell discourse, as it's called, uh, where, where Jesus is basically saying, I'm getting ready to go away, <clears throat> and preparing them for him to be gone. Uh, he introduces them to the Holy Spirit, and we use that as sort of a jumping off place to um, explore a series on the Holy Spirit. And so we're coming back to John 18 this morning where we uh, learn about his betrayal, arrest, and denial. And so we're going to uh, open up right there to the text immediately, and I'm going to ask you if you are able to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We just give reverence to His voice as we hear His Word proclaimed. The words are on the screen if you need them. Listen to the Word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill, fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of, his, uh, one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple 
where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers, officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you, are not also, you, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And as familiar as it is to us, as abundantly available as it is to us in many translations, shapes and colors and all kinds of different presentations, as, as abundantly available as it is, we still believe, Lord, that it is precious, that it is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut to the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we bring our hearts to you, Lord, uh, admitting, confessing, acknowledging that you know them in ways that we do not. And you know how you need to penetrate us to the very core of our being. And so, God, we ask that you would speak your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory and our good. Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, it wouldn't be news to you for me to tell you that people are capable of despicable things. Right, and, you, and we know that from our own experience. We know that even with, should know that from our own experience with ourselves. But people are capable of despicable things. And, and, and uh, you know, around the world, maybe, maybe especially in lots of the world, if we were to get outside of this country, uh, we would, it would be right in your face just how deep and wide depravity runs. I mean, there are places where um, the, the whole a whole country just runs on corruption and uh, oppression, just just power and force and so on, deception, murder, uh, just all kinds of of evil. And it's not just away from here; it is also here, right? Not just in uh, international settings, but in our own country. And it's not just in a non-Christian or irreligious setting either. But religious and church people are capable of despicable, heinous kinds of evil. In fact, John 2, uh, 24 and 25 
says that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That was the people who were really drawn to the miracles that he was doing. Jesus, it said Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You may remember that early on in our study of the Gospel of John, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. And the depravity runs deep and it runs wide. He didn't entrust himself to them, but he gave himself for them. That is the absolute staggering truth about what Jesus did. He, he knew what was in man enough that he didn't entrust himself to them, but he gave himself for them. See, that news becomes so familiar to us, we lose our sense of how good that news is. But that's really what we're presented with here in John chapter 18. The, the wickedness of the hearts of people, but the willful sacrifice of Jesus for them and for us. I want to uh, give you a, just a quick review of where we left. Because if we had just been studying straight through the Gospel of John, we would have just come out of John 17. And uh, we and it wouldn't uh, the verses uh, chapters 13 through 17 would be fresh on our minds, but um, as it is, that's been like three and a half months ago or something. So, um, all of chapters 13 through 17 happen on this same night that we're reading about tonight. That Jesus gathers with them around the table. John tells us he washed their feet, and in that same setting, he predicts, he foretells the betrayal and denial. That's going to happen this night. Tells Judas what you do, do quickly. Tells Peter he's going to deny him. And he's like, never. And that, that is, that's happened uh, in, the, in the middle of that meal together. And then Jesus begins, again, what's called the farewell discourse. He begins to say goodbye. I'm going away. Let not your heart be troubled. I'll go and prepare a place for you, and I'll send another comforter, the Holy Spirit. There will be one with you in my place as you continue on preaching the gospel of the kingdom in my place as well. He goes on to say there in that same passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. Without me, you can do nothing. And then in chapter 17, it's the high priestly prayer where, where he prays to the Father on their behalf and among other things, asks that God would make them one as he and the Father are one. All of that transpires within a very short period. It's five chapters out of a book that's 21 chapters long. happens in one sitting. And then... We come to this scene in the garden. And really, the, the message here in a nutshell, what's being communicated to us, is that Jesus chose the cross because of the darkness and wickedness of the human heart. It's not in spite of. We'll, we'll see Jesus here choosing 
the cross. He's choosing to sacrifice himself. And not in spite of the wickedness of man, but because of the very wickedness that is the instrument or the, the, the conduit that leads him to death. And so I want to show you first here this willful surrender of Jesus and then the wicked heart of man. We see uh, in, in some subtle ways here um, that John is really, I think, very deliberately communicating to us the willfulness of Jesus' decision here. And, and beginning with the fact that Jesus had the knowledge to avoid capture. Remember, he knew, he knew Judas was going to betray him. That's already been revealed. They've already had that exchange. Judas has gone on his way. He knew that was going to happen. If he wanted to avoid being captured this night, he could have gone to a different place. Because if you look in verse 2, it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met with his disciples there. He could have gone and hidden any number of places at night on the outskirts of, of Jerusalem. He, he wasn't trying to avoid capture. He wasn't caught off guard here. Judas didn't do anything to him that he, wasn't, he didn't see coming. In fact, it said that explicitly. He, in fact, Jesus knew Judas would betray him, so he went to a place where he knew Judas could find him. Very willful on his part. And then secondly, uh, Jesus had the power to defeat his captors. Right? He, now, we know that just, again, on a most basic level because we know the rest of the New Testament and we know what it tells us about who Jesus is. But even right here, it says... Uh, beginning in, in verse um, 3, perhaps, or something following there. <laughs> it says there that Judas procured a band of soldiers, probably with the help of the officers or the chief priests and Pharisees that came with them. So what you get, the scene you get here is you've got some of the Jewish religious leaders coming out for him and a band of soldiers with them. You've got the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities both coming out, outside the city, where maybe there would be less of a scene. Uh, they're coming there to get Jesus. The word, though, for band of soldiers literally for, refers to a, a military unit and, and sometimes just called, translated as a cohort. If you have the New American Standard, that's the word it uses. But it, it's the word that refers to a particular military unit, one-tenth of a legion, 600 to 1,000 soldiers. That was the detachment, it says in the NIV, or the band of soldiers. I mean, it would be like saying today, you know, a battalion of the army went out. It's, uh, I know almost nobody knows what size that is, but it's, in other words, it's using a specific word of a specific size unit. It's a bunch of soldiers. It's kind of overkill. I mean, they hadn't ever seen Jesus do anything that warranted that sort of um, show of force. But one of the things that, that happened around Passover, Ro the Romans would send in uh, additional military units because thousands more people come into Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. And as we've maybe considered before around Easter time, it, it tends to stir up a sense of nationalism. You know, the national pride, and if they're, and they're living under the thumb of a foreign ruler, the Romans, 
And, you know, it's, it's the kind of setting where you might ignite insurrection. They want to be, it's like police being, you know, downtown on a Friday night or something. Not that insurrection might happen, but, you know, some other things that uh, just an additional military presence just might be, or a police presence might be helpful. That's the sort of thing going on here. And so they have additional detachments. One of the detachments goes out um, in force to take Jesus into custody. And so look, at that scene, Jesus, do you think now, 600 soldiers with torches and lanterns, you think you would see them coming? You know, if you wanted to sneak away, probably have opportunity to sneak. But look at what Jesus did. Because this is actually an important contrast to what we'll look at later. Jesus came forward and asked who they were looking for. And he even says, he, came, he comes forward, leaves his disciples a little bit behind, and then later, later says, let them go. If you want me, let them go. He comes forward, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he, or literally, I am. We've read seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John, where he's making statements that identify himself with the one true God. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the way the name of God, Yahweh, is translated is these two Greek words used right here. Ego imi, I am. That's what Jesus says in response. And unless we think that's just the way you say I am, which it, which it is, it doesn't have an ordinary effect here, does it? Did you catch that? When he said I am, the soldiers drew back and fell down. I mean, it's just a show of the power of Jesus in just a word, in just a breath. I mean, 600 soldiers ain't going to make any more difference than six if he wants to overthrow his captors, but he doesn't. He, uh, he chose, as it says down in verse 11, he chose to drink the cup that the Father had given him. This is the cup of wrath that it's referring to. The wrath of God to be poured out on the sin of man. Jesus is drinking the cup. That's that's his choice. Had the knowledge to avoid it. Had the power to defeat his captors. But he chose to drink the cup of God's judgment upon mankind by taking it upon himself. And again, here we see the beautiful irony that the heart of mankind that deserved the wrath of God is on open display in this series of events. You see the willful uh, uh, choice of the uh, of Jesus, the what did I the willful surrender of Jesus? I titled it, and then you see the wicked heart of man. Both of those are going on here. This is what John is presenting us with: the wickedness. That Jesus died to pay for is the very wickedness that was a means of leading him to death. Now, I, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if I can say that uh, well enough, clear enough, or enough different ways for us to appreciate the significance of that. But the 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 wickedness he died to pay for. 
is in the very present moment the wickedness carrying him away to death. And here's the other thing I didn't say at the outset. You and I need to identify our hearts in the wickedness of, uh, of, of men. In other words, that the dark heart of man is not just common to somebody else. It is common to us. We like to read the Bible again and see ourselves as the good guy or the hero, right? Or we read something like this and we identify ourselves with Jesus. No, we're, we're to identify ourselves here with uh, the whole full range of sinners. This would be like, you know, if the Sunday school teacher was, uh, was having a skit here. Hey, okay, um, need everybody to play a part. You all get to be the bad guy. Like everybody, who wants to be the person who betrays Jesus? Uh, who, wants, who wants to be the, the ones who slap him and, you know, try to cheat him into, you know, a confession of something that he didn't do? Or who wants to be the one to deny him? That's, that's all the characters, pretty much. I mean, everybody's represented here. Everybody is represented here. Friend, a parent friend, and just outright enemy. So we see that sinful heart of man express itself in three different ways. The first being betrayal, of course. That This same scene we're looking at in these first 11 verses reveals the heart of the one who betrays. It refers to Judas. In fact, in fact you don't, we can't think of Judas probably in any other way. We, we can't think of the name of Judas without associating it with betrayal. Right? In fact, it's, the name Judas is sometimes used synonymously. Or, or you know, uh, so-and-so is a Judas. We know exactly what that means. He's a traitor, right? He, be, he betrays. He's referred to twice as the one who betrayed him in this passage. In my reading this morning, this uh, struck me as, I don't know, it, it just particularly noteworthy I think a, a, just a good way of speaking to this. But when we receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which we'll do next week, I always quote from 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul uh, kind of lays out the institution of the elements. And he says there, speaking of this event that happened uh, just prior to this, their meal together where the Lord's Supper was instituted, Paul speaks of that. Not of uh, on the eve of the Passover. That would have had theological significance to the Lord's Supper. He didn't speak of it. He didn't say on the night before Jesus was crucified. That would have significance to the penalty he paid, right? What does he say? On the night when Jesus was betrayed. Like this, all that happens this night... And all of eternal significance that happens on this night. Paul refers to it as the night when Jesus was betrayed. That's striking and it ought to get our attention in some way because betrayal is in some way especially heinous, isn't it? What is it? What is it that makes betrayal just an especially wicked sin? Everybody here, I suspect, 
has felt some measure, you've experienced some measure of betrayal. Not quite like that. Not Judas and Jesus level, but everybody knows what that feels like. And what is it that makes that especially wicked? I think it's kind of summed up in Psalm 41.9. David experienced this and he speaks to this a number of times in the psalm. Here's what he says. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Isn't that the issue? Even my close friend, one I trusted, he ate my bread, sorry rascal. Right? There's just something, there, there's just something deeply offensive and wounding and somehow even more sinister, it seems. Betrayal. You know, you build walls around a city to keep the enemy out, but you let friends in, right? It's the people you let in who you think are for you and with you and defending you from the evil on the outside. And when the strike comes from one inside, it just cuts way deeper. It's more personal and it's premeditated. This is the thing often, again, for people who've, who've experienced, and some people perhaps um, experienced it in the way of divorce. Um, and that's certainly not always, uh, very often, I mean, divorce comes about in a very mutual kind of brokenness or whatever, and just a whole an innumerable variety of ways. But some people may have experienced it, you know, that way where the other person had been thinking about it a long time. I mean, part of what's so painful about it, in other words, catches the individual by surprise. The other person's been working on it a long time. It's personal and it's premeditated. And my point in saying that as we move on is just to say, we ought not to think that we're incapable of premeditated and personal kind of sin. And I don't even just mean just betraying friends, but even the way that we sin willfully, decisively, and, and sin against God. It's personal in that way. In a, in a personal and premeditated sort of way. But there's, there's a heart of a betrayer who is an apparent friend. Jesus already knows that he's not. Moving on from there, we see also about the human heart, just hostility toward Christ, right? I could even say malevolence. It's really malevolent here in this particular expression. But in verses 12 through 14 and then 19 through 24, we see Jesus brought before uh, this assembly of Annas, and then he's led on to Caiaphas. But this hostile heart is the heart of those that are opposed to Christ and his ways, enemies of God, which again, Ephesians 2 says is true of all of us before we knew Christ. You, he said, were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We were friends of the enemy and enemies of God. That's how the Bible describes us. Hostile. Toward him. Now, the good news for those who are 
believers in Jesus, as it goes on to say, but God, you were hostile, but God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love for you, made you alive together with Christ. Just because he's good, just because he's gracious. But this is the heart of mankind toward God, hostility. This particular scene was an illegal trial. Annas, um, as you, you may have sort of put a question mark in your own mind, how, how is this really all, who are these guys, how this is working out? Annas is the former high priest. He's not even sitting as high priest now. The father-in-law of Caiaphas, who used to be the high priest. But he's like one of these guys. He's like the, the former president who's still respected and influential in his party. So even though he doesn't have a position of authority, like they still want to know what does he think and uh, that sort of thing. And they bring, they bring Jesus to Annas, the former high priest, who still kind of carries that title like the president does even after he's out of office. And it's like he's trying to see if he can drum up something to, to accuse him and convict him of this. It's, it's an illegal trial altogether, and they did not follow the due process that they're supposed to follow when trying a capital case. And so here are a number of ways in which that's true. It should have been held during the day, but he's tried at night. It should have, been, it should have not been held on the eve of a Sabbath because it's a capital case. Uh, it should have not been held on the eve of a Sabbath or a festival, but he was tried on the eve of Passover. Should have been in a public place. It's in the home, the private home of the high priest. The death penalty could not be declared on the same day of the trial. But they were bound and determined to arrive at that sentence and send him to Pilate for that to be rendered. There should have been witnesses called and if not, Capital charges should have been dismissed. There are probably more than just that. But it's, it's, it's a sham of a trial and illegal on their part. And that's essentially the point that Jesus is making when he responds. They, they ask about his teaching. Now, when they send him to Pilate, the charges will be political, not theological. You see, because... All they are concerned about is a conviction, not the truth. They want him dead, and they're, gonna, they're, they're working on a way to get there. But they ask him about his teaching, and Jesus said, beginning in verse 20, I've always spoken openly. You know, there's lots of people who have heard what, I, what I'm teaching. Why don't you ask them? This is how it's supposed to go. If there are charges against me, call witnesses. He says that, and he gets slapped for it. And then he says, if I'm wrong, point out how I'm wrong. I said something you didn't like, but if I said something that's not true, point it out. That's exactly what he's speaking to. He's just calling it out. He knows how this is going to play out. But he's just naming the truth about the wickedness of these people. The leaders of the people of God are just thoroughly wicked and unlawful all the way down the line. 
not concerned about due process and not looking for the truth, just hostile toward God. And then finally we see in the heart of man this denial. We're familiar with it uh, down in, in verses 15 through 18 and then 25 to 27. But Peter, who had just stood courageously by Jesus, right? He just, like, in other words, this isn't like some manufactured bravado Jesus or Peter's got. He just stood bravely right beside Jesus, drew his sword, cut off a guy's ear. Right? That's a show of courage, real courage. And within the hour, or maybe a few hours, Peter denies that he's a disciple of Jesus. The same guy goes from a greater uh, display of courage than many of us could muster. I don't know if you're that honest about yourself, but I hope so. That we don't give ourselves more credit than we deserve about the strength of our own convictions or faith or whatever. He just had this great display of courage and then this desperately low display of cowardice. We could call it that. I mean, it's the, the opposite of, of courage. And notice in, in sort of the telling of this, the way John tells it, the stark contrast between Jesus and Peter in the way this went. Confronted with the likelihood of being taken captive and tried and condemned and so forth. Jesus comes forward and says, I am he. Peter says, I am not. It's a striking contrast, isn't it? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. Are you one of his disciples? I am not. And of course, Peter pretty well withers after that. He knows immediately what what he's done and is just deeply convicted and thinks he's condemned for it. And there's, of course, a wonderful story of redemption that comes after that. But the first, you know, the first denial we, might be easy to excuse, maybe, you know, uh, or easier to excuse when you think uh, he's just kind of caught off guard, right? Things are unfolding quickly and you get put on the spot and, uh, e- you know, easy to lie or give the wrong answer, especially the question asked the way John phrases it. You're not one of his disciples, are you? That's like you, you may know as a parent, if you want to get a child to tell a lie, ask the question that way. You didn't break that vase, did you? No. <laughs> of course not. I mean, look at the look on your face. What a stupid question. I, I, I mean, I'm not very old, but I know the right answer to that question. Right? And it's, so it's like, it maybe that sort of scenario, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? No. But then he denies him two more times. And in fact, the way Matthew reports that, it sort of grows a bit where, are you a disciple? No. Uh, are you a disciple? I don't even know him. He asked him a third time, and he, and he, he swears. He, like, he, he and, and invokes a curse on himself. It's, like, it's something like, on my mother's grave, I swear I do not know him. Like he, he's just more and more committed to the lie as it goes on. And again, 
uh, there is certainly that potential in our hearts, maybe not to deny him altogether, because maybe we won't be confronted by that, but, um, but to, be, to discover that our faith is weaker than we think it really is. Part of Andrew Brunson's testimony that many of you have heard as a, as a prisoner in a Turkish prison, you remember that story perhaps as a, as a Christian, because he was a Christian, accused of trumped-up charges and thrown in a Turkish prison and kept there for an extended period of time. And finally, arrangements were made for him to be set free and to come back to the States. But part of his testimony is that he discovered his faith was not as strong as he thought it was. As a missionary, he really had to sort of vow that he would face martyrdom. He would accept martyrdom if, if, if his service as a missionary called that. That's part of our commissioning in the EPC of missionaries. He thought he could. He really believed he could. But then when he actually was thrown into the, the, the dark place of a dark prison cell, he found out otherwise. And he contended for his faith and he held on to his faith and he found God was very gracious to him there. But it's just, again, a personal uh, sort of testimony. I mean, some of us have heard him share that personally. But even those who think they are conditioned and prepared for and committed to standing in their faith, even in the face of circumstances like that, he found that it wasn't. He wasn't. And we ought never to overestimate the strength of our own faith. Like, we have it in us. This is not a story here merely about once upon a time some mean people were mean to Jesus and he died and saved us and now we're nothing like those mean people. This isn't just a once upon a time story about people once upon a time. This is about the heart of human beings and how dark they can be. And even those of us having been given a new heart who still have the same old flesh and the same old mind find ourselves over and over again inclined towards sinning against the very one who gave himself because of our sin. And the good news is that that revelation to us just drives us right back to him. I mean, the question is never uh, whether or not I have myself together enough. Can I get it together enough? The answers to those questions are no and no. But the question is, in light of the fact that I am still a sinner and still sinning. And, I'm, and, and in light of the fact I'm shown the ugliness of my own heart again, is the grace of Jesus great enough to forgive me once again? And the answer is yes. And that's the good news. The good news of the gospel, again, is, is also not a once upon a time good news. Once I was a sinner and, and then God and Jesus forgave me and now... Uh, I'm a whole new person. I am, but I'm still in need of his grace and his forgiveness every day and every week. 
and it's always available because of his willful sacrifice, his willful surrender uh, for the sake of the wickedness of the human heart. We'll close right there and let's pray together. Well, Lord, we bless your name and we thank you again for your goodness and your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that we share in common as followers of Jesus that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins have totally by grace been made alive and raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, made joint heirs with him, given a seat at the banqueting table, given citizenship in the kingdom of God, all by your grace. So God, we just, we thank you that that was true, is true, and will continue to be true, Lord, that you are gracious to us. And God, we pray that you would disclose to us the truth about our own hearts and the ways in which we stiffen our necks against you and walk our own path and betray and deny and even walk in uh, or walk with those who are hostile to you. God, would you convict us and change us because of your love and by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.